A while ago, I saw a movie in which a character points to a dire set of circumstances that some people might soon face. Well, if that happens, he says, those folks will regret the day their fathers met their mothers. In other words, they will wish they had never been born. We all hope we never feel that way, but the biblical figure of Job did. In fact, it's where the book of Job begins, and today on Groundwork, we will begin to explore this important book. Stay tuned. From Words of Hope and Reframe Media, this is Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. We are beginning now today a new series on the book of Job. And uh, no surprise, throughout this series, we're going to be occupied with the, the key question that preoccupies this biblical book itself, and that is the question of suffering, yeah. uh, evil. Why do we suffer? Right. Job is a classic expression of this. I mean, it's recognized not just in the Bible, but outside of it, philosophers and thinkers and theologians have looked at this book from the ancient world, the ancient Hebrew scriptures, as a classic exposition of this struggle to understand, understand the things that happen to us in the light of a belief in God, as most people share, a belief that there's a God who's good, a God who governs the world, a God who's in charge of things, a God who cares about us, who watches over the details of our lives, and still it seems like these terrible things happen to us so often, or to friends or loved ones, and uh, we wonder why. Right. If God is so good, you know, the classic way of expressing it, if God is good, he must not be great. He must not be powerful enough right. to stop this. If God is powerful, he must not be good because otherwise he wouldn't. Right. You know, why the Holocaust? Why childhood cancer? All those kinds of questions. And it's a universal question, as you say, Dave. People wrestle with it even if they don't believe in God. But if you do believe in God, as Job does, as we do, that makes it even harder. How do you square the goodness and the power of God with this. And that is, uh, atheists actually use this as an attempt to disprove the very existence of God. Because as you just said, Dave, that's the classic statement. If God were all-powerful, he could head off all evil. If he were all good, he would, but he doesn't. And since God, by definition, should be all-powerful and all-good, Therefore, there must not be any God at all. That's where the atheists go with it. Right. Christians, of course, face those same questions. We don't deny those questions. It just, for the believer, it makes faith more complicated. Uh, you have to ask some questions that people without faith don't need to bother with. And I think if there's one thing we should take away from the book of Job, the story of Job in the Bible, and the fact that it occupies such an important place there— it's that the answers are not going to be simple or simplistic. This question is complex, and life is complicated. It's not so straightforward to explain, well, God is doing this and therefore that, and you're experiencing the other. The whole point of Job, and the reason it's so long, and at times even it can get tedious, you know, as with all the speeches and all the debates, but the whole point really comes down to this is not an easy question, and there are no easy answers. And, you know, whole theological and philosophical conferences and colloquia and seminars and long encyclopedia articles have been devoted to this, but we all know this is not an academic matter, right? All of us have it where sometimes it just feels like my life, uh, your life, has become kind of an ash heap. 
And, and we sit there and we say, why did my grandchild die? Why did my marriage fall apart? I loved my job, worked 30 years and bang, I was fired. Why does cancer eat away at my loved one's body and Alzheimer's at my loved one's mind? These are not philosophical questions. No, These no. are acute pastoral questions asked from the ground level of life, not the ivory towers of academia. We know what this is from the inside out. You know, and you know, Jesus knew too, because it's the classic question, the haunting question he himself asked on the cross. My God, my God, why? why, why? And uh, we can't help but ask that. What's happening? What are you doing, God? Yep. Uh, and that, that's really the story of Job. So yeah, that's the, this is the premier place, certainly in the Old Testament, if not right. in the whole Bible, where where we uh, wrestle with this. And so if we look at the book of Job, lots of people in history and today as well look at this book and sort of say, did, did it ever ever really happen just this way? And the, the truth is, the book does have kind of a once upon a time right and timeless quality to it. Yeah, you know, Job is not a Hebrew. He's not an Israelite. It doesn't take place in Jerusalem. Uh, this is how the book opens. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So, you know, Job uh, isn't even a Hebrew. He's He lives out in the East somewhere, and there is a kind of a, well, you know, maybe he's a figure. He, he's not necessarily a real person, historical person. He, he's meant to be a symbol or an image. Right. And, and, you know, that's possible. Yeah, I don't we're not told it, when he lived. Scholars will say nobody knows where Uz was. Yeah. <laughs> the land of Uz, it could be the land of Oz. I mean, nobody knows where that was. So there's a timeless quality to it, but it gets even stranger uh, in Job 1. We don't know where on earth this happened, but soon we are brought to a scene in heaven, which is very strange. Listen to this from Job 1 verse 6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So there's a scene for yeah, you. Um, that's kind of weird. Which probably we don't want to take too literally. Uh, it's very hard to imagine Satan just sort of casually mingling with angels uh, coming before God. Harder even still to think that God and Satan are kind of moving us around like pieces on a chessboard. Yeah, but yeah. but that's the premise of the book, of this sort right. of once upon a time book. Job, unbeknownst to him, is going to become the object of a test to test his faith, to test the faith by proxy of all people. Right. Satan wants to know, do people only worship God because God's nice to them, or do they really love God no matter what happens? Right, exactly. And, you know, the word Satan is a Hebrew term. It's shatan, and it means the accuser, mm -hmm. the adversary. So Satan, 
is playing his role to the hilt here in this heavenly scene as he appears before the Lord. And again, we we shouldn't push the details of this. This is almost like a parable where you want to get the main point without necessarily pressing home that this is the way it is in heaven, that Satan can kind of stroll in and out, that he has a, a you know a open door policy. He has come, he appears in the story as the accuser, and his accusation is the cynical statement to God that, you know, Job only serves you because of all the, right. all the stuff you've given him. Right. And if you take that stuff away, he'll turn against you in a flash, right. and he'll curse you to your face. Right. And God says, okay, let's try it. Let's try it. And of course, maybe the maybe it's the wrong question to ask. Did this ever really happen? Because it keeps happening. It's yeah. still happening. It's Absolutely. A, it's a true story in the sense that it's our story. We find ourselves in bad circumstances yeah. that you, you try know, our faith. Right. It's the nature of faith. What, what is faith anyway? Is it believing in God because of, or is it believing in God in spite of? Right. Uh, And that's the question. And so in just a moment, we're going to see what happens to Job and his initial response. We'll take that up in a moment. When we read a novel or watch a movie, we expect the plot to develop toward a climax, when the main character triumphs over the villain. Contrary to our expectation, the book of Hebrews opens with its climax. The author begins with the victorious Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father and continues the rest of Hebrews by describing how Jesus is superior, far superior to angels, to priests, and to the Old Testament system of sacrifices. In doing so, he shows us how Jesus fulfilled all that was prophesied about him earlier in the Bible. So join today in June for a series of devotions titled Jesus in Hebrews. Refresh, refocus, and renew at todaydevotional.com. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose, and today we're beginning a study of the biblical book of Job, uh, a book that really helps us wrestle with our questions about why God allows suffering and how are we going to react when suffering comes. So we already saw that unbeknownst to Job, he's become kind of the the target of a a gambit, uh, a bet almost, between God and Satan. Uh, So we won't go through all, all of it, but Suffice it to say that once God gives Satan permission to touch Job, Job loses everything. He loses his property, his animals, his servants, and tragically, all of his children. One thing after another, one calamity like a hammer blow follows the other. And Job is literally brought low. He's sitting in the dust. He's torn his clothes. He's He's in abject misery. And whether we read the story literally as a history of an individual, it could be, or whether we're inclined to read it more uh, symbolically or theologically, it's a sort of parable of human experience, we know this is true to life. This is what happens. We are brought low. And sometimes... You know, we'll say of somebody, they're living the life of Job. You know, one. how can one person experience so many bad things? Yeah. Uh, it does happen. Did Job ever really live? Uh, my answer to that is he still lives. Yeah, yeah. He's living still all, alive. Might be next door. Well, might be living in your house. Could be me. Could be you. Yeah. But Job, Job is stripped of everything. In uh, verse 20, we read this. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So there he is in this deeply moving scene. He's still worshiping. He's not charging God. He's not accusing God. He's not certainly not cursing God to his face as Satan said that he would. But he hasn't reached rock bottom yet. (laughs) So as the story goes on, now Satan comes back and he says to God, well, yeah, okay, fine. He's lost a lot of stuff, but you haven't really touched him. That's where Job 2 begins. Satan doubles down on on the gambit, on the bet. And so God says, uh, fine, uh, go ahead. And so Satan afflicts Job with some horrid and, and putrid skin condition. His body is ravaged. He's in great pain. But again, now in chapter two, here's how he responds. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So Job is maintaining his faith and his integrity, much to the chagrin of Satan, no doubt. Uh, and Satan certainly does not win the day. Uh, Satan disappears from this book after this. He won't make a reappearance at the end. Uh, only God will have the last word here. But Job is still left with all these questions. But Dave, what's interesting, Job clearly believes this was all dished out to him directly by God. But the reader knows something Job doesn't. Mm. It isn't actually coming directly from God. It's coming directly from Satan. Now, that doesn't take God out of the picture. Right, he still right. gave him permission. Okay. But you know, in our lives too, it's one thing to chalk up, you know, oh, my business is succeeding. My children are happy and what a great blessings from God. But sometimes when bad things happen, some people say, well, this is God's will for my life. My three-year-old got run over by a drunk driver, but God sent it to me for a reason. Sometimes we're pretty sure God sent it. The book of Job itself says, oh, hold on, there might just be more going on than you know about it, and it isn't all the direct will of God. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we, as believers, find ourselves needing to remember. We have to kind of resort to a way of saying this that gets at the truth that is complicated. So sometimes we talk about God's permissive will versus his active will. And, you know, you can push that too far, and Mm -hmm. maybe it doesn't hold water philosophically or logically, but there is this sense that God has set limits to how much Satan can do to Job. That comes through Mm -hmm. quite clearly. Another way of getting at this, I think it was Martin Luther, I've I've read this once, that uh, Luther said God does some things with his left hand. Mm. It's trying to say the same thing, that we can't attribute everything to God's direct intentional will. God doesn't do evil. God doesn't do sin. God doesn't do things that are wrong. So, And, and yet they happen. So how do we right. fit that together? That's what's trying to be said here. And another thing I think we need to note from Job 2, Job does not sin. You know, he, he figures this is from God, but he figures God can't do wrong. So he's not going to curse God or accuse God of wrongdoing. However, precisely because Job still has faith, he does do something that people of faith do, and that is lament. And so moving into Job 3 now, let's listen to these words from Job where he he laments, beginning at Job 3 verse 11, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were the knees to receive me and the breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I'd be asleep and at rest. 
for sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. And that's pretty grim stuff. Uh, in fact, he not only wants to die, he wishes he had never been born. Yeah, he wishes uh, he had been the stillborn child. His, his pain is so great, so intense. And somehow I think this can help us maybe to sympathize with people who are perhaps caught in the grips of clinical depression or of such deep loss and sorrow that they just, you know, they're in such a deep hole. And Job is there too. It's not an easy place. And again, there's no quick solutions or simplistic answers. And so, yeah, as we've, we said before, now and then we, we run into somebody whose life is in such bad shape. We say, wow, that guy's like Job. He's living the life of Job. But people don't always think that low. But all of us know people in our churches and our congregations who are hurting. And so as we think about how we interact with them and what do we say to them, uh, what can we learn from Job? And we'll ponder that as we close this program in a moment. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. I'm Dave Bast, along with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork, where today we're just uh, opening the book of Job. We're beginning a series that looks at this classic biblical example of a man who suffered unjustly, suffered, as he thinks, at the direct hand of God, suffered from the attacks of Satan. He's lost everything. He's lost his property, his wealth, his possession, his children, and his health. And yet he sits on the ground still and worships. He bows his head and says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Words that have spoken really comfort to millennia of believers. And then he goes on to lament, too, lest we think this is a, an easy thing for Job to just say, oh, easy come, easy go, I'm still worshiping God. Right. He wishes he had never been born. His pain is so intense, he just wants to escape. And I think we said, uh, as we close the program, David, that we want to think about, you know, what lessons can we take from this book when we are faced with sisters and brothers in our own families, in our congregations, our churches, who are, are hurting? And, you know, we we always struggle. You know, you go to the funeral home or, or you, you, you run into somebody at the store and you, you know, what do I say? What do I say? And we don't want to say the wrong thing, though people often do, uh, well-meaning, but they say the wrong thing. And we're going to start to see that in the next program when some friends of Job show up and are faced with that question. But so far, just in these first three chapters, um, what can we learn? Well, again, we said one thing. Job doesn't know everything that was happening behind the scenes. We readers know, but Job doesn't know. So he's pretty sure that for whatever the reason, it's God who directly willed and sent this stuff to him. But we know it's not quite that neat. Now, 
we said the whole scene of God and Satan betting on Job, we maybe don't want to overextend that imagery to take it too literally. It's sort of like, if this is almost like a lived out parable, then it reminds you of Jesus' parables like the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus didn't tell that parable to tell us, oh, when you're in heaven, you'll be able to see people in hell like the rich man and Lazarus see each other. No, don't overextend it. So we don't want to overextend it. But this much we can say, and that is that if we struggle to know what to say to somebody who's lost something, a child or, or whatever, we should be a little hesitant to say, well, clearly this was God's will for your mm. life, so you must accept it from God's hand. It might be more complicated than that. It was for Job. That's very true. So we, we speak about God's left hand, maybe, or uh, God's permissive will and Satan uh, being the real enemy and adversary. But I, I also think it's possible to take away from Job an example of someone who went on worshiping God even mm. in the face of loss, uh, someone who for whom faith meant believing in God despite, not because. I don't know if I've shared this before on a Groundwork program, but my own family history, my father lived the life of Job. You Mm. talk about the life of Job. He lost two wives at a young age to disease, each time left with young children. And then as he was aging, he lost a son. And I still remember gathering with the family at the dinner table the day we heard of my brother's death. My dad took the Bible out and wanted it to be read after supper, as we always did. And we read these words from Job. The Mm. Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then uh, from the Psalms, bless the Lord, O my soul. And somebody said, no, we shouldn't do that now. (laughs) Let's Mm. not... And my dad said, no, you keep reading. That's exactly what I want to do. I want to worship God. And he bowed his head like Job. So this too is a reality, I think, that that believers have found. Right. And to say also, and and perhaps your your father and others uh, would also agree with this, that it is also okay to lament. Yeah. It is also okay to tell God, this is lousy. Uh, Job does. I, You know what? I almost wish I had never been born because this hurts so bad. And, you know, we are, seems like this has been increasingly true in, in more recent times. We in the church shy away from lament. When we hear others lament, we wonder if that's a sign of weak faith or, oh, you, you, you shouldn't say that because if God sent this to you, then how dare you complain to what, right. for about what God sent you? A third of the book of Psalms, there's 150 psalms in the Bible, and almost 50 of them are psalms of complaint and lament. It is not weak faith that laments, it's strong faith uh, that believes God can take it and believes that this isn't the final will of God for my life, so it's okay if I lament. Job does, and I think we need to give people... We need to give ourselves, but also the other people in our church, give them space to lament and don't tell them that that's a bad way to pray. You know, in our tradition, for many of us, descendants of Northern Europeans, you know, you have the kind of stiff upper lip idea of got to put a strong passive face on things and don't let anyone into your innermost feelings and keep a tight rein, you know, on your emotions and, and all that. And nothing could be further from biblical faith. These Hebrews, you know, they let it all hang out. They were they were Middle Easterners. They screamed and they cried and they cried out to God. And God accepts that. In a sense, it's good to do that because that too is a sign of faith. You know, if you're just simply a Stoic, there's no reason to object to the bad things that happen in life, the evil in the world, yeah. because why should it be otherwise? Yeah. It's so, all ju- if it's all just luck. Luck, good fortune. Yeah. 
It's the belief, this passionate belief that God is good and God wants to bless us. That calls it forth from us, and we we cry out our pain to him, and it's all okay. Yeah, and if Job proves anything, it is that, you know, what what I think we fear when we chide other people for lamenting is that we think it means you're blaming God, you're accusing God. Job made it clear he isn't blaming God, he isn't accusing God. You can lament without accusing God of doing something wrong, and that's a a balance we want uh, for our lives and for those around us. So it's okay. You don't always have to say when somebody asks how you're doing, oh, I'm fine. You can let the veil slip once in a while. If there's one thing Job teaches us, it's that this too can be an act of faith. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Dave Bast with Scott Jose, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we examine and test against Scripture the most common questions many of us wrestle with as we try to explain and understand experiences of suffering. Connect with us at GroundworkOnline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Media in partnership with Words of Hope. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, our studio relations manager is Christy Prince, our content and managing producer is Courtney Jacob, and our executive producer is Stephen Coster.